Well, good morning, everybody, again. Um, so I want to ask you a question. How many of you think that you are teachable? Oh, okay, yeah, you're not quite sure. <laughs> you didn't want to sound too proud or, you know, uh, arrogant when you raised your hand. Well, you know, we should all be teachable. We used to say, if you're looking for people uh, to serve uh, in ministry, we used to say we want FAT, fat, faithful, available, teachable. And that teachable part is, is kind of interesting uh, because it means a person who's teachable doesn't think, I know it all. I've got this. Because what happens is they stop learning. And People that are unteachable can be, quickly become uh, defensive. Uh, they can become resistant to change. They have one way of viewing reality, of seeing the world. And they, they, they have strong convictions, but there's a fine line between being a person of strong conviction and just being plain stubborn. And so even having strong convictions, we're still receptive to learn. Even if you have strong convictions, and as Christians, we do. But we do know, as I preached a while ago, Romans 14 and so on, that there's some gray areas in life, and we don't know everything. I don't know everything. And we're all probably wrong about something. So if a man speaks in the middle of nowhere, and there's not a woman anywhere to hear him, and he speaks, is he still wrong? Okay. Um, so a person who's got strong convictions is still receptive to information. They've got strong opinions, but they can be convinced to change their mind if they learn something new. A stubborn person, they're on their own island. And they close their mind to all other possibilities because they can't possibly be wrong. Don't be that person. Let's be teachable. So one of the ways that I try to stay teachable, um, I belong to a, a, a group. I went to a, a church in Steinbeck, Manitoba. You've heard me talk about this, Southland Church and a wonderful thriving ministry. It's got a global outreach. And I'm part of a mentoring group of pastors from across Canada. And I'm in one of the cohorts. And uh, every Thursday we meet. Um, and we meet on Zoom um, because people are all across the country. And uh, I'm there to learn and to grow, and we share our hearts and our lives and our struggles. I need that. I don't have it all together all the time, and I don't know it all. The other thing I need to do is to do what Martha's sister Mary did in the Bible. She sat at the feet of Jesus. You know, she postured herself in a, as a worshiper and a learner. That's the posture we always want to have as Christians, is to say, I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I need to be careful as a pastor, and maybe especially if you're in leadership, I have to guard my heart. I've really got to guard my heart. For out of it flow the issues of life, the Bible says in Proverbs. Because when you're in positions of leadership, it's really hard to get bitter to get defensive, to get cynical. And I know if I don't meet God in the morning and sit at the feet of Jesus, if I don't have my devotions every single morning, if I don't sit in stillness and silence before God and listen for his voice, I can quickly become unteachable and hard-hearted. And I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to be a crusty old curmudgeon 
I don't want to be that way. Hmm. So what brings you to church on Sunday? So there's people sitting here. There's people watching uh, the live stream. So what brings you to church? Is it because, well, maybe it's just habit. You know, for some people, it's just a habit. And maybe you don't know how else to answer that. But is it because you're hungry and thirsty? Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They'll be satisfied. Are you hungry? And are you thirsty for righteousness, for Jesus? Or have you settled for hollow religion and dogma? You know, I've got these certain beliefs, and that's good enough for me. But no, it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. So spiritual hardness can easily creep into our lives, especially when people let us down. Or if we feel that God has let us down. And it's a pathological condition. We know the story of Moses when he was called to deliver the people of Israel out of bondage. And he goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And the Bible says God hardened his heart, but it's because he was already hardened. And we see the same thing with the people of Israel. When Moses brought them, they saw the miracles, the parting of the Red Sea. And then when they got hungry and they were uncertain what was going on and what God was doing when they were in the desert, what did they do? They grumbled, they complained, they wanted to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. They hardened their hearts against Moses, against a man of God. And then we see the same thing in the New Testament. The Pharisees of the New Testament became, well, not all of them, but many of the Pharisees, the teachers of the Jewish law. And so the signs of a hard heart, let's just do a little self-examination. Can we do that? And this is not an exhaustive list, but are you cynical? Have you given in a cynicism or like a fault-finding attitude where you stop believing the best in people? And instead, you look for the worst in people. My wife and I watched a movie uh, with Robert Redford. It's called The Castle. And the prison warden was really a corrupt, shallow man. And uh, Robert Redford always saw the best in the prisoners. But this prison warden said, I look for the worst. He found the worst in everybody. And that's what he did to people. When you go around just seeing the worst and you're filled with cynicism and jadedness, that's all you can see is what's bad. That's how you know you're getting hardened. You become apathetic or indifferent. Um, And it's easy for apathy to creep into the life of a Christian. You know, to become indifferent to stuff like, well, whatever, whatever. You know, I, I just don't care anymore. And sometimes we just show up out of habit. But we're not feeling it anymore. And you might see somebody who's worshiping God or responding to God or they're at the altar and maybe they're, they're, they're weeping and they're being really responsive and you're like, I don't get that. What's, what's that? Like, what's going on with them? Get over it. And they, they can't feel that anymore. They, don't, they can't feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. They've stopped learning. They've stopped growing. They stopped being teachable. And so, if that's you, 
God loves you. You know who that was in the Bible? Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. And he persecuted Jesus, his church. And if God got a hold of him and did what he did, there's hope for you. So, we've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, Mark chapter 3, uh, at the very beginning, you know, it, it, it tells us that, uh, you know, Jesus was in the synagogue. And we already know that he developed quite a following. Crowds were following him. There was admirers, you know, and all of that. People couldn't get close enough to Jesus. But there was a group of people that also hung around. But they stood back observing, you know. They, they, they were just uh, standing off to the side, and they were critical. And they're in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and you know, they made all these crazy rules about the Sabbath day, the day of rest, and you can't do this, you can't do that. And it wasn't in the Bible, they just kind of, you know, you couldn't do much. And what happened, there was a man there who had a, a withered hand, a crippled hand, maybe he had arthritis or something, he couldn't do much. And, and, and Jesus has compassion on him. And the Pharisees, these teachers of the law, they're standing back just waiting to pounce on him to see what he does, to see if he will heal on the Sabbath. And of course, what does he do? He does. And they thought they caught him, you know. And it says in verse 6, they went out, the Pharisees, with the Herodians, that's another group, and they plotted to kill him. And the whole point of the Gospel of Mark, if you read the Gospel of Mark, it's really about Jesus. There's all these stories and these miracles and the healing and the deliverance and all of that, but it's really about who is this man? Who is this man that demons know who he is and he drives them out? And he sets the oppressed free. Who is this man who can heal the sick? And make them whole again. Who is this man who speaks with such authority? That's what Mark is about. It's pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Who was promised to come. He's the son of God. So the crowds continue to grow. And that brings us up to verse 7. The crowds continue to grow. Jesus is increasing in popularity. Um, actually, it's kind of interesting. If Jesus would have come in our day, I think you know, he probably would have gone viral. He probably would have had like, lots of likes and lots of follows and you know, all that kind of stuff. He probably would have really gone viral had he been in our day because people just could not get enough of Jesus. And there would have been probably a lot of internet trolls criticizing him as well. So Jesus became really popular because he gave hope to people who were desperate, to people who were broken, to people who felt forgotten. They didn't follow Jesus necessarily at the beginning because they believed he was the son of God. They just saw someone who could meet their needs. Yeah, I don't care why somebody comes to church. If they come just because they're in need and they know nothing about our God and they're not worshipers yet, that's fine. 
Let's welcome them in. Let's embrace them. Let them feel that love and experience that love of God through his people. And then they will, over time, become true worshipers. How many of you, just show of hands, please. How many of you have watched any episodes of The Chosen? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, how many of you have no idea what I'm talking about? Oh, okay. You got to Google it. Chosen, and there's an app. Get it on your phone. It is the best thing on the life of Jesus I've ever seen. You should watch that. Um, okay. So anyway, Jesus is growing in popularity, and it's because people can see that he can meet their needs. And then the crowds are pressing in upon him. Um, it says he withdrew with his disciples to the lake. Because they were, what happened is they had this idea that if you got close enough to a healer and you could actually touch that person or touch their clothes, that healing would flow. And they, they were crowding in upon him. And, um, and so he, he had to get into a boat on the Sea of Galilee, which, you know, and, and he gets into this boat and uses it as a preaching platform so he could teach from there. So Jesus knew as the crowds were growing, and the crowds were growing in diversity, they were coming from uh, all over the place, from faraway places. Word got around, it traveled. And he realizes, I can't do this on my own. He knew that already. And so look at verse 13. So we get down to verse 13. And this is what it says. He went up on a mountainside, and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. So he had already a bunch of followers, and of that group of followers, there were certain people he called to come and meet him on the mountain. And it says, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And then it gives us the, name, the names of the 12, starting with the apostle Peter and ending with Judas. Jesus knew that he could not do this on his own, and he knew that one day he was going to go back to be with the Father in heaven. He needed to now entrust his mission to people that he could equip. And so there were two purposes that he had when he chose the 12. And I've asked this before, how many disciples did Jesus have the word disciple is mathetes in the Greek. Don't worry about that. It means one, a person who learns. Somebody who kind of follows a rabbi around. They, they're learners. How many disciples did Jesus have? A lot. Thousands, maybe? How many apostles was he training? How many missionaries was he training? Twelve. We're all disciples here. Well, if you're following and you have the attitude of a learner and you're teachable, we're all disciples. But he wants us to be a church that's also preparing apostles or missionaries. And it says that he had two purposes in appointing them. One is that they would be with him first, that they might be with him. They, and we can't do this in the same way here in our culture but they, they were together all the time. And if you watch The Chosen, this series, which is phenomenal, you'll see that they were with him a lot. They were always together with him. And his life and his values, his spirit was rubbing off on them. And somebody once said that discipleship 
is more caught than taught. Yes, it is taught, and there's a place for the classroom, but it, you catch it. You catch it like a virus. You know, you, it's, you're around this person, and it's infectious. They're contagious with something, and then you get it. And they were around him, and his life was rubbing off on them. He had influence. And it was important that they were with him. The reason I have to have my devotions in the morning is I need to be on the mountain. I need to be on the mountain. I need to spend time like Moses did. I need to spend time with God. I don't know it all. And I can't do it all. I need him. I need time in his presence. With him. Two purposes. He said he appointed 12 that they might be with him. And that he might send them out. And he sent them out with authority in his name. So that they could teach and preach and heal and equip and others and drive out demons. But he wanted them to be with him. But you know what? You can't stay on the mountaintop. You can't stay on the mountaintop. You've got to go to the mountaintop. So if you have your devotions in the morning and you're soaking up good things from God... And, and you feel like you feel like you've just been filled to the fullness of God. That's not just for you. That's for others. Now you pay it forward. You've got to, we've got to go from that place of stillness, being with Him, to being sent by Him. And so that means that when you go to your job in the morning, if you're out in your neighborhood, if if you're going shopping for groceries or going banking, and there's a clerk in front of you. Pay attention to what God's doing in that moment because you're a missionary. You may not be a pastor of a church, but we're all missionaries here. And so, and, and they learned by trial and error. By trial and error. They learned by doing. If you say, you know what, you got to give me a book and you got to give me a course because I'm not doing nothing till you show me how to do it, that's not the way that God works. You read the Bible. Most people that God called did not have a clue what they were supposed to do. They learned as they were being obedient to God. And so what happens is Jesus' movement here is growing. There's more following him. He's now equipping the disciples. And suddenly what happens is we see rejection. And then we get down here uh, to verse 20. And this is what it says. It says, they entered a house, and again, a crowd, notice what it says, again, a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples couldn't even eat. How many of you really appreciate it when you're in the middle of a really delicious meal at supper time, and the doorbell rings, and there's two people standing there with information? Do you love having your meal interrupted? This happened to Jesus all the time. And it was really hard for him. He had to really be intentional about getting alone time with his father. And it says in verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. So they, even at the beginning, so how many of you, if you were raised Roman Catholic, you're probably thinking, okay, Jesus did not have brothers and sisters. Actually, he did. And you can read it if you want to look ahead in your Bible. Uh, it's somewhere in here. Anyway, I think it's somewhere, Mark chapter 6, where 
Jesus has four brothers, and he has a sister, and you know, he's got a mom, and he had brothers and sisters. And they were his family. And now they're getting concerned about him. And they're actually getting concerned, it sounds like, about his sanity. And so they don't seem to, at this point, recognize who he is, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. They just know Jesus, our brother. But guess who did recognize him? Back in verse 11, we don't have to look at it on the screen, it says that the demons knew who he was. A demonized person would come before Jesus and fall down, and the demons would cry out, we know who you are, you're the Son of God. They knew who Jesus was. But Jesus' own family did not know who he was. Well, they knew he was Jesus of Nazareth, but they didn't know anything beyond that. And and it's interesting that the demons knew who he was. They recognized him, but they did not submit to him. And this is the problem when you just have a set of beliefs, people, is recognizing and saying, I, I, I believe the doctrine that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and that he is Lord of all. Have you made him Lord of all? Does he function as your Lord? Just the recognition of that is not enough. We must submit to his lordship, to his kingship. Surrender. We sang that song, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. That's what it means to make him Lord. The demons didn't do that. Jesus said, people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Where's your heart today? Where's your heart? Do you have a heart for Jesus? Is your heart soft towards God? Is it porous, able to soak in his word? Or is it hard? You know, Mark chapter 4, we're going to be coming to this passage, you know, where he talks about the parable of the, the soils. You know, the seed that's, and some seed is, falls on hard ground, and nothing happens. You know, I could preach and preach, Pastor Blaine could preach and preach, Pastor Trey. We could all preach and teach, and if your heart is hard, it makes no difference because you're not receiving it. Don't be that person. Be teachable. And so, honoring me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. His family thought they didn't recognize him. They thought he was out of his mind, it says in verse 21. But the Jewish leaders didn't recognize him either. Look at verse 22. Look at verse 22. It says, the teachers of the law, they came from Jerusalem. You know what? Jerusalem was headquarters. I've got to tell you this. Our headquarters in the Church of the Nazarene is in Kansas City, Missouri. And if we get a visit from headquarters, it usually means we're in trouble. You know, if they come that far, unannounced, it, it, it would generally mean something's wrong here, and they've come to, to investigate and this is what happens. So these, these uh, theologians from Jerusalem come to, to investigate, uh, to check out what's happening. And they said this about Jesus, verse 22. He's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. Now, we don't need to talk too much about who this Beelzebul is, but it really became synonymous with Satan. 
They're saying he's, he's, doing, he's filled with the devil, he's filled with demons, and he's using demonic powers and dark powers to drive out demons. Not a compliment. By the way, if I'm criticized, as we all get criticized, you know, I just take heart and go, you know what, Jesus was the only perfect human being <laughs> who ever lived without fault, and he couldn't escape it. Neither can I, neither can you. And so the crowds continue to grow, but now what's happening is now there's organized opposition against him. That's back in Mark 3, verse 6. You know, the Pharisees and the Herodians get together, and there's organized opposition. They want to get rid of him. But I want this, listen to this word of caution. And I, I, I got this out of a commentary when I was preparing. And this is a Nazarene, uh, the new Beacon Bible commentary out of the Church of the Nazarene. This is what it says. Please listen and think of our current day that we live in and what's been going on in our world and the divisions and the conspiracies. He says, opposition, now to the things of God, can come in the very potent mix of religious piety and political power. The people of God lose their prophetic voice when they collude with a political entity that arrogates to itself the prerogatives of God, they unwittingly align themselves with the forces of evil disguised in the partnership of piety and patriotism, not with righteousness and peace. Think about that. My allegiance is to Jesus Christ. That's it. I mean, you know what? Vote, and you can have your favorite politicians of political party but our allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is it. Otherwise, we fall prey to deception. So the Pharisees, they, they travel to investigate Jesus. They accuse him of blasphemy. They're spiritually hardened. And um, what happened with the Pharisees, that are, that are the ones that opposed him, it's like they thought they knew it all. And they stopped learning. They stopped listening. Their mind was made up. It's like a, you know, like a kangaroo court. It's kind of like, this not really a trial. You're not listening to the evidence. Your mind's made up, and their mind is made up. They, they were not participants in what was going on with Jesus and the crowds. They stood back, observing, criticizing, and finding fault with him. You know, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, it tells us when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought into Jerusalem... David, who was king, what did he do? He basically had a linen ephod. I mean, he wasn't naked, but it was probably the closest thing to being in his underwear, but not, or maybe, you know, whatever. But what does he do? He's dancing like a crazy person before the Ark of the Covenant. Kind of make it a but he was so filled with joy and celebration. And it says that Saul's daughter, Michal, she looked out the window and saw him and says she despised him in her heart. She stood back like the Pharisees and despised him. And David, Jesus was the son of David, is the son of David. And people despised him for what he was. They just stood back and observed. There's a natural tendency for us to ossify. And to ossify is, is basically like when things become bone-like or hard to become hardened over time. If we don't take care of our hearts, folks, 
it's easy to ossify in our opinions, to think that our reality is the only reality. We no longer listen. We can't empathize. It's hard for us to see the other point of view, and all we can do is criticize. And that's why people are yelling at each other all the time in our world. They become hardened. And we're not like that. Amen? No way. And so when we become hardened towards God, we become hardened towards, towards Jesus, we become hardened to his word, and we become hardened to people. You know that story at the beginning of Mark 3 about the man with the, the crippled hand? And they, his critics couldn't celebrate the miracle of healing. They were that hardened, all they could think was criticism. A beautiful work of God occurred. Somebody was set free, and all they could think to do was criticize. What is that? So Jesus responds. He says, you tell me that I'm doing these miracles, I'm setting people free and liberating them and healing them and making them whole by the power of the devil. He said, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Enough said about that. He said, why would Satan drive out his own demons. He's working against himself. And then he talks about it. He uses another parable, and that is about a strong man. He said, basically he's saying the strong man is Satan, and he's come to bind people and to imprison them, to put them into bondage. And some of you here today might be in bondage to your thoughts, to your fears, to habits that are destructive. Maybe some watching today. And Jesus comes to liberate you. And he's the one who binds the strong man. He is stronger. He is greater. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so Jesus comes to invade the kingdom of darkness. That's what he does. But they couldn't see it. And they accused him of blasphemy. Blasphemy, that means slander against God. And that was punishable by death, death by stoning. They accused Jesus of blasphemy. You know what Jesus said? I'm not the one blaspheming here. You are. And then he says this, verses 28 and 29. Verses 28 and 29. He says, truly, truly, I tell you, Amen, amen. That's what it is in the Greek. People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. Here. People worry about, have I committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? If you're worried about it, you haven't done it. If we see and experience observe the work of God. We see his miracles. We see people being set free. And we attribute that to Satan. That is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And those who continue to see the works of God displayed before them and say, that's the devil. That, that's why when people ask me about what they, what they called the Toronto blessing many years ago, and people were doing a lot of strange stuff, and people always said, Brian, what do you think about that? I read, I read a lot of stuff where people said that was of the devil, and I said, I'm not going to do that. 
Because I don't know, and I wasn't there. And you know what? Be very, very careful when we criticize. Because you're in danger of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And that's what this is all about in this chapter. So what makes God angry? Jesus was angry at those people at the beginning of Mark chapter 3. What made him angry? What made him angry was hardness of heart, unbelief, a refusal to learn, the unteachableness, just critical of everybody and everything around them and not being able to celebrate when a good work was done and somebody was delivered. And so, Jesus' family, this is in verses 31 and following, right at the end. They arrive, and I'm going to wind this up. But I want you to think about how you should respond to this message in this passage of Scripture, please. Um, Jesus' family arrives now, and you remember they said earlier he's out of his mind? They come now to get him. They come now to apprehend him and to take him back home because he's in this home teaching. There's this crowd, and they can't probably get in. And it says that they're standing on the outside looking in. And they get someone and say, would you get Jesus? Would you tell him his family is here? And how does Jesus respond? Think about people who venerate Mary and put her like way up here. He says, who's my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters anyway? He looks around at the people sitting there with him, encircling him, and he says, look around. These are my brothers and sisters, my mother, my family. Those who do the will of God are my family. It has nothing to do with pedigree. It has nothing to do with denomination. It has nothing to do with credentials it has nothing to do with your bloodlines. In fact, Jesus, didn't he say, anyone who puts mother or sister or brother or father or even your own life before me is not worthy of me? He said that. Your family, your blood family is not your priority. Your spiritual family is your priority. According to Jesus. And so he said, whoever does the will of God. So who is in and who is out? The Pharisees thought they were in. But he's saying, if you don't listen, and you're just religious, and you're full of rules, and that's all you see, and you have no compassion and no love, you're on the outside looking in. Who's on the inside? Tax collectors, prostitutes, the marginalized, the poor, the disheveled, the forgotten, who are willing to admit their sin and humble themselves before God. You know you're on the inside if you believe that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, and follow him. Are you following him? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, walk in his steps. Apostle Paul said, follow me in my example as I follow the example of Christ. Jesus washes disciples' feet and he says, do as I've done for you. Follow him. What does it mean to follow him? It means you've got to do his will. 
Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. That's what it means to follow him. And to know his will, you've got to be able to listen. Got to be willing to listen. Beginning in a couple of weeks, I'm starting another round of Hearing God classes. Hearing God is six weeks. Six weeks. Please go to our website. If you're interested, honestly, it's changed my life and my approach to prayer and my approach to Scripture. I want to tell you that. It really has. It's made a profound difference. If you want to learn more about how to hear God and to know His will and to follow Jesus like you really mean it, consider this class. Just consider it. It's six weeks on a Thursday night. You get all the details online or talk to me personally about it. And so, how's your heart? I want to ask you, take a look at this image. How's your heart? There's a heart that's covered with stone. But you know what? Underneath that, there's still a beating heart. And even if you're crusty and you're calloused and you're not teachable, there's hope for you. Look what God did for the Apostle Paul. Look what he's done for somebody like me, for many of you here today. And so what I want us to do is just close in prayer, and then I'm just going to give the benediction. Father, thank you for this time together today. Thank you for this, uh, the gospel of Mark and for this teaching, um, this narrative that tells us about Jesus and, and, and how people f- followed him and crowded around him, but how many just stood off to the side and were just unresponsive and unteachable. Lord, help us to soften our hearts before you. Take out our heart of stone, Father, and give us a heart of flesh, I pray. Would you just say, Lord, in your own way, just pray this, Lord, soften my heart. I want to hear your voice. I want to be a learner, a disciple. I want to continue to grow. I don't know it all, Lord. I humble myself before you like a little child right now. I'm teachable before you. Teach me, Lord. I want to grow to become more like Jesus. I want to do his will. His will and not my own. Use me, Lord. Show me that I need to be with you daily. Spend time with you daily so that you can send me out into my world to make a difference for Jesus Christ and the gospel. And in your name I pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And all God's people said,